0: So how many of you are enjoying the cool weather? You like it? Maybe you got up this morning and you said, boozy. That's redneck for, man, it's really cold this morning. Or maybe not, but we're glad to see you here this morning. It is a welcome change, isn't it? So it's kind of enjoyable. We're grateful for that. Romans chapter 11. We're going to begin with verse 11. We're going to read down through the end of this chapter. Paul, of course, is writing, he says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not, but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry." If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh, and save some of them. For if they're being cast away as the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fail. Severity, but towards you, goodness, if you continue in His goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut cut out of the olive tree, which is wild, wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature in a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted in their own olive tree? I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins." Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy." For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are overwhelmed this morning as we contemplate the work that you have done in our lives and, Father, the work that you have promised to do in the lives of Israel. And, Father, we we not only give you praise for who you are, for your grandeur, Father, for your majesty. Lord, we find ourselves humbled in your presence. Your ways certainly are beyond ours. And Father, it reminds us of how small we are in comparison to you. Lord, I pray for understanding this morning. Lord, we're always in need of understanding. And we know from Scripture, Father, that you have given us your Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who aids us, who who illuminates our minds and gives us understanding. And he is the one who enables us to apply the Scriptures to our own lives. And we would pray, Father, this morning that that would be true of us. Father, that we would make application by your Spirit concerning these truths. And Father, that you would be glorified in your church as we gather here this morning. And do what we always do Sunday after Sunday. That is to open the word that we might hear you speak and to glorify you as the one true and living God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to finish our study of Romans chapter 11. And in order for us to do this, as you may have already gathered from the reading of our text this morning, we will be covering a rather lengthy portion of Scripture. 26 verses to be exact. And I think most of you know me well enough to know that that I very rarely... Ever attempt such a feat. In fact, I'm not completely sure, but I don't think I have ever covered this many verses in one message. But this morning we will. So what that means is that for some of these verses, I'll only be able to give you a, a summary of what Paul is saying, otherwise we could be here a very, very long time. And that would be that would be not profitable for you, nor would it would be profitable for me. Now, this past Sunday, as you may well remember, we looked at verses 1 through 10 where Paul's primary focus, at least from my perspective, seems to be on ethnic Israel or Israel as a corporate entity. And I draw that conclusion based on the ending of chapter 10, verse 21, where Paul speaks of ethnic or corporate Israel as a disobedient and contrary people although Paul uses spiritual Israel or the believing remnant of Israel in the first 10 verses as, as proof that God has not cast away his people, his primary overall concern is for corporate Israel, unbelieving Israel, those who in large part have rejected Christ and his righteousness. And this is why Paul raises the question that he does in verse 1, which we, which we looked at this past Sunday. Has God cast away his people? His answer, as we saw last Sunday, is this resounding, certainly not. But Paul, as is his typical fashion, is is not content to leave things with the strongest negation in the Greek language. Rather, he feels compelled to elaborate on this issue. So what he does is he offers up this threefold response. In the first part of his response, Paul points us to the existence of a believing remnant, which we which was really what we covered this past Sunday in verses 1 through 10. And to prove that this believing remnant is indeed credible evidence that God has not cast away his people, Paul draws our attention to three things. First, he draws our attention to himself. Paul makes it clear that he was, he was not only an Israelite, but he was a believing Israelite. He was a follower of Jesus, and he was an apostle at that. The second thing he draws our attention to is God's foreknowledge of his people. Paul seems to indicate that that this foreknowledge that he speaks of is regarding Israel, meaning that he foreloved them. And then thirdly, Paul points us, draws our attention, I should say, to God's response to Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, where God kept for himself 7,000 men and caused them to remain. Which brings us to the second part of Paul's response in verses 11 through 24, which is the focus of our attention this morning. And that's the temporary rejection of Israel. Now you'll notice that as Paul provides this second response that he does so by raising another question in verse 11. He says, I say then, have they, has Israel as a whole, has corporate Israel stumbled that they should fall? Now you understand the reason that Paul raises this question is primarily because of what he's already said in verse 7. In verse 7, you may remember if you go back there, he makes this statement that Israel has not obtained what it seeks. And what was it that Israel was seeking? Well, we see it in in chapter 9 as well as in chapter 10 that they were seeking God's righteousness or that they were seeking a right standing with God, but they did not obtain it. So Paul says Israel has not obtained it, but the elect have obtained it. Meaning the remnant has, but the rest were Blinded. Or a better translation is that the rest were hardened. Paul says there's a, there's a believing remnant that remains, but the rest at this present time has been hardened. The majority have been hardened. And he quotes Scripture in chapter 10 to back this up. All of which brings to the, brings to, to the surface this question in verse 11 where he asks, Have they stumbled that they should fall? What Paul is asking is simply this... If the majority of ethnic Israel are hardened, is their hardening final? Is it permanent? Is this God's final word for Israel as a whole? The question you see is basically a question about Israel's future. Another way to phrase that question is to phrase it in this way. Has Israel as a people stumbled as to fall beyond recovery? So basically what Paul's doing in this verse is he's He's playing the word stumble and fall off of each other. And, and as I thought about this, I immediately thought of, of college football. Now, just saying that, I, I purposely said that just to get your attention again. So I know some of you would already, you know, passed out, or so to speak. But anyway, and I said college football, and there's somebody sitting there, college football? Wait a minute, the pastor's talking about college football? I think I'll listen to what he has to say. But you know, I thought about college football as we, as we look at this play on words, not really a play on words, but he plays these words off of the other, stumble and fall. And if, if you know college football, you know that if you're running with a ball and you fall, or to be precise, your knee touches the ground, then you're down, right? There's, there's no recovery. In other words, you, you can't keep running. Well, you can keep running, but it won't matter because the play is over. But if you merely stumble, which is another way to say that your knee doesn't touch the ground, then you can keep on running. You could say that you're still in the game, so to speak, because the play is not over. And in a way, this this is really what Paul is asking here Is Israel still in the game? Is there a future for Israel? Has there been a complete downfall for them? Has something happened that is final? Are they beyond recovery? Is their situation permanent? As someone has pointed out in the first question, Paul is, is asking, is Israel's rejection total? But in the second question he's asking, is Israel's rejection final? And Paul's answer in the latter part of Verse 11 is the same in verse 1 of this chapter. He gives another resounding, certainly not, saying, but through their fall or through their transgression, their trespass, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Paul says Israel's not out of the game. It's not over for them. Why? Simply because their fall, their transgression was actually a part of God's plan. So what was God's plan in setting Israel aside? Well, he mentions three things here. First, he says, through Israel's fall, through her transgression or her trespass, no doubt referring to Israel's refusal to embrace the righteousness of Jesus Christ, salvation, he says, has come to the Gentiles. And we know this from Scripture, right? I mean, over and over again in the book of Acts, we see Paul and others taking the gospel to the Jews, watching them reject it, only to see the Gentiles accept it. A classic example of this is found in, in Acts chapter 13. As Paul and Barnabas were ministering at Antioch, Scripture says that they preached the gospel to the whole city. But when the Jews saw the multitude, Scripture says, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. The Gentiles, on the other hand, begged that these words might be preached to them. So Paul and Barnabas said to the Jews, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. But since you rejected and judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. second reason that God set Israel aside was to provoke them to jealousy through the salvation of the Gentiles. Now, the jealousy that Paul mentions here is is not so much what we see in the example of Acts chapter 13, which records that the uh, the Jews envy upon seeing the Gentile multitudes. That's one way to understand jealousy or envy. But more than likely, what Paul has in mind here is a jealousy provoked by the blessings of salvation. That is, God's God's intent was to use the Gentiles' reconciliation to himself as a means of provoking them, the Jews, to desire the same things for themselves. Which brings us to the third reason that God set Israel aside, and that's for the benefit of the whole world. Notice in verse 12, Paul says, Now if their fall, meaning their transgression... Referring to Israel is riches for the world and their failure, riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. Paul says in this present time, Israel's fall means riches, which I think means the riches of the gospel for the world as well as for the Gentiles. And if that's the case now, Paul says, just think of how much greater the riches of the gospel will be for the whole world when Israel's fullness comes. The best translation of this word fullness in verse 12 I think is found in the ESV translation which translates it as Israel's full inclusion. Which means that, that this is a reference to the full number of Jews which someone has described as being the full number of Jews neglected by grace, purchased by the bloody death of Jesus Christ, called out by the preaching of the gospel, regenerated by the Spirit and saved by faith alone. In other words, when we think about Israel's salvation, the salvation of the Jews, it will be no different than the salvation of the Gentiles. There's only one gospel, and that's the gospel, the good news, concerning the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which means that there's only one way to obtain a right standing with God, and that's by faith in the person of Jesus Christ. As Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the gospel is the power of God ...to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. But notice as well in verse 15... ...that after Paul shares with the Gentile believers in Rome in verses 13 and 14... ...his special calling to them and his desire to provoke his people to be saved... That ...in hopes that some might be saved... Paul reiterates this whole worldwide benefit of the full future inclusion of the Jews to the body of Christ, and he says this: for if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Paul's point is that, is that if the Jews' rejection of the gospel, if their being cast away, resulted, in the blessing of the gospel of reconciliation being preached worldwide, then one can only imagine what their full acceptance will be into the body of Christ. I mean, the only way to describe it, Paul says to describe it as life from the dead, and whether Paul means that spiritually or whether he's speaking figuratively, the primary point is that it will be something to behold. And so in order to put all this into perspective, what Paul does at beginning with verse 16 is he gives this warning to his Gentile brethren. I mean, it's clear from the previous verses that he's anticipating this future work among his brethren according to the flesh. So in verse 16, he begins to lay the historical and biblical foundation for what God has done and what he will do among the Jews. And in doing this, he makes use of two metaphors to make his point. He says in verse 16, for if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now in his his first metaphor, Paul alludes to the practice of Numbers chapter 15, in which the first piece of one's dough, which, which Paul identifies as the first fruit, was to be consecrated or to be set apart or given to the Lord as being representative of the whole lump. He makes basically the same point in the second metaphor saying that if the root of a tree is holy or set apart then obviously so are the branches. Both the doe and the root you see were more than likely a reference to the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And thus what Paul seems to be implying is that if, if God set apart the patriarchs as, heart, as holy then Leon Morris says then this has consequences for their descendants. Specifically it implies that That God is not finished showing mercy to Israel, nor is he ready to discard them permanently. So, with all of this in mind, Paul continues this warning to Gentile Christians in verses 17 through 24 by speaking of branches being broken off and grafted in. As John Stott points out, what Paul presents to us is two complementary lessons the first being a warning to Gentile believers not to presume or not to boast. And the second being a promise to Israelite unbelievers that they could be restored. So, for the sake of time, let me just walk you through these verses. Notice that Paul begins by directly confronting Gentile believers, which was no doubt a problem within the church at Rome. I mean, I think most of us know, at least as we're reading the Scriptures, the Gospel as well as Paul's letters... That, that this was an ongoing issue, was an ongoing problem, that even though these individuals had been saved by grace, even within the church, we know that the racial tension between Jew and Gentiles had spilled over into the early church. And so, you know, as we think about our culture today, and we, we talk about racial tension. We need to understand that when we look at the racial tension of our day, it doesn't even come close to the racial tension that existed in first century culture. I mean, it was off the charts. And so we know that, that this was an ongoing issue within the church, and, and definitely it was an ongoing issue within the church at Rome. So Paul says in verse 17, And if some of the branches were broken off, which refers to unbelieving Jews who had been temporarily rejected, and you being a wild olive tree, which refers to Gentile believers were grafted in among them, which most likely is a reference to the remnant of believing Jews, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, which is Paul's way of saying, you have become, talking to the Gentile believers, you've become a sharer a partner in the root and the fatness of the olive tree, which some believe is an allusion, once again, to the patriarchal base established by God's covenant with His people. So Paul says, if this is the case... He adds in verse 18, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Leon Morris says that Paul doesn't say don't boast. but Rather, what he's really saying is don't boast against others. In other words, it's not so much the attitude of I am wonderful... That Paul is warning against is the attitude, I'm more, and more wonderful than you. And that's a particular issue of concern. And this I think we see throughout the scriptures. I mean, for example, I, haven't, I don't have these up on the projection screen this morning, but if you look at the verses in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 1, I believe it is, Paul is writing, you're familiar with this particular passage. He says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory or boast in his presence. But of him... Of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. As Paul's way of saying, if we're going to boast in anything, let us be boasting in the fact that we are in Christ. And that he has become for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification and redemption. In verse 31 he says that, that as it is written, he who glorifies let him glory in the Lord. Paul is simply saying if we're going to boast, let us boast in the Lord. Some of you heard me say this before, but when I was a kid, and I, I don't know why I remember this, there was, that, there was a jingle of this commercial, it was a dog food commercial. and you, some, of, some of you are not old enough to remember this, but you, do you remember kennel ration dog food? Yeah, so there was this jingle, my dog's bigger than your dog, my dog's bigger than yours, my dog's bigger because he eats kennel ration, my dog's bigger than yours. Every time I I think of haughtiness within the body of Christ, for some reason, that jingle comes up in my mind. You know, if this attitude, we're walking around in the church, you know, thinking, I'm more wonderful than you are. I'm more wonderful than you. I'm more wonderful because God has chosen me, hasn't chosen you. (laughs) So I mean that seems to be what the issue that Paul is is driving at here. So what is the attitude, what is the antidote to such an attitude? Paul says the antidote is to remember you don't support the root. The root supports you. His antidote, you see, is humility. The root here, I think once again is the patriarchs. Why? Because it was it was it was to them that God gave gospel promises. Which we see clearly in the covenant that God made with with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2 and 3. Where he told Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You understand this is the root. So Paul continues in verse 19 and 20 saying... He will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Paul says, well said, because of unbelief they were broken off. And you, stand by faith, do not be haughty but fear. Paul, he's imagining Gentile believers protesting that they have every right to boast being that branches... Were broken off, meaning unbelieving Jews were broken off so that they could be grafted in, as if to say they deserved to be broken off. The unbelieving Jews deserved it, and they deserved, the Gentiles deserved to be grafted in because they believed. So, what's Paul's response? Well, his response is well said, meaning, well, that's true. But Paul reminds them that the Jews were broken off because of unbelief, and that believing Gentiles stand by faith. In other words, I think what Paul is saying here is that the faith of believing Gentiles was not of their doing. It was God's doings. If they were standing by faith, you understand, it was only because of God's mercy and because of God's keeping. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, you remember this. Paul says that we're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It is what? It is what? It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should what? Boast. And believe me, if it was any different than that, we would be. We would be boasting. Therefore, Paul says, notice this. He says, don't be haughty. Don't be arrogant. Rather, he says, fear God. And then he strengthens this warning in verse 21, saying, for if God... Did not spare the natural branches. Referring to the Jews. He may not spare you either. Stott says the warning here is, You must not forget what happened to unbelieving Israel, which belonged naturally to the olive tree, for you do not naturally belong. I can't think of of a more direct way for Paul to put the Gentile believers in their place. The point you understand is, This morning, as we gather here, we gather here as Gentile believers. And as we do, you understand, in Jesus Christ, we know nothing of superiority over anyone. Nothing. All that we know is mercy and grace. Every single one of us here this morning are absolutely indebted to God For everything that we are. Therefore Paul says in verse 22. Consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fail. Severity. But towards you goodness. If you continue in his goodness. Otherwise you also will be cut off. Paul says unbelieving Jews experience God's severity. but, But we by God's grace through faith and nothing of ourselves have experienced God's goodness. Therefore, we must continue in his goodness, meaning we are to continue leaning on the goodness of God, not that not that we are to continue striving for goodness. No, we're resting, we're resting. What Paul is saying is that we are this morning we are resting in the goodness of God. Otherwise, Paul says, you also will be cut off. He's not You understand, there's nothing in this passage where Paul is saying that we're saved by works, nor is he saying that true believers can lose their salvation. He's simply pointing out what we all should know to be true, and that is, namely, if our faith is true. It is true only because we are resting in the goodness of God. Amen? I mean, that's that's really the root of our salvation. The root of our salvation is the goodness of God. And if we're resting in the goodness of God, then yes, we will persevere. Or to put it another way, yes, our faith will work. There will be a demonstration or a manifestation of works that is a result of the faith that we have in the Lord Jesus. As as John Stott says, continuance or perseverance is the hallmark of God's authentic children. If you're a born-again believer this morning, one of the great marks of your faith being genuine is the fact that you persevere. That you don't give up, that you don't throw in the town, that you don't, tile, you don't walk away from the Lord, but rather that you continue. Paul then moves from warning Gentile believers to that of a promise to unbelieving Israelites. He says in verse twenty-three and twenty-four, and they also, meaning unbelieving Jews, if they do not continue in unbelief, note this, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you Gentile believers were cut out of the olive tree which is wild by nature and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these unbelieving Jews who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Sande and Hedlam say that basically what Paul is, is saying here is that the restoration of Israel is an easier process than the call of Gentiles. So that ought to put you in a place this morning. If you're a Gentile, and most of us are, right? Paul is basically putting us all in our place. He's, it's His way of saying that restoring Israel to the olive tree is going to be a whole lot easier than it is to call you Gentile. And what a sobering and magnificent description of God's ability and undeserving mercy toward his people. Which brings us to Paul's last response to his original question. Has God cast away his people? And as we have already seen, Paul's response has been and continues to be this resounding no. Certainly not. And why does Paul respond in this way? Why does he believe his people have not been cast away. Well, first, as we've already seen, because of a believing remnant. Secondly, because of the temporary rejection of Israel. And then thirdly and finally, because of a mystery surrounding Israel's salvation. He says in verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. It's clear from this portion of Scripture that Paul's primary aim is to, is to make both believing Jews and Gentiles aware of a mystery concerning Israel's future. In fact, Paul is adamant that they not be ignorant of it, lest they be wise in their own opinion, which is Paul's way of warning them of the sin of conceitedness. This mystery that Paul speaks of in verse 25 in Scripture, doesn't, it doesn't refer to a truth that is difficult to understand, but rather a truth that is previously unrevealed or previously hidden, which is now made manifest and publicly proclaimed. And this is what Paul brings to our... Attention in three parts. The first part of this mystery is, is not really a mystery, being that Paul has already spoken of it in this chapter. And that's that a blindness or hardening, in part, has happened to Israel. To say that Israel's hardening is in part is to say that it's a partial hardening, which means that not all Israelites have experienced this hardening. And the evidence of this is due to the present remnant chosen by grace. But Israel's hardening is not only partial. Paul goes on to reveal that it's temporary as well. And this is the second part of this mystery. He says that blindness in part has happened to Israel, note this, until, critical word, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now this word fullness more than likely refers to the full number of Gentiles. Which correlates to what Paul has already said in verse 12. John MacArthur says that the word until refers to, refers to time and the word fullness indicates completion and together those, two, those terms denote impermanence, a temporary period of time. The hardening, he says, will last only for God's divinely determined duration. It began when Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah and Savior and it will end when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Which brings us to the third part of this mystery, verse 26. And so Paul says, "And so are in this way, all Israel will be saved." Now, most of you know, as you've heard me speak on this this Sunday as well as last Sunday, that I've consistently maintained throughout this chapter, that the Israel that's spoken in this chapter, chapter 11, is ethnic or corporate Israel. And I believe that's the case here. John Mur- Murray. Uh, One said that it is exegetically impossible to give to Israel in this verse any other denotation than that which belongs to the term throughout this chapter. Which is simply his way of saying throughout this chapter what Paul has consistently done is he's consistently referred to corporate Israel. However, even though I believe this is the case that Israel refers to ethnic or corporate Israel or Israel as, as a nation, as a whole... I don't believe that the word all means that every single Jew who makes up unbelieving Israel will be saved. And most scholars are in agreement with this. Uh, F.F. Bruce points out that the phrase all Israel is a reoccurring expression in in Jewish literature where it need not mean every Jew without exception but Israel as a whole. And, and oftentimes we, we see this in our language today when we, we talk about events that we have and somebody says, well, how many people showed up? And you say, well, the whole church showed up. Now, that's primarily true that it was the whole church that was represented, but that doesn't necessarily mean that every single member of the church showed up on that particular Sunday. And that kind of language you use all the time. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. It's also what we find in the language of Paul in other places where he used the word all. And if we took that literally, it would mean that Paul was a believer in universal salvation. That salvation is going to be applied to every single person. So the salvation that Paul has in mind here, that Israel as a whole will experience, is revealed in the latter part of verse 26 as well as in verse 27 where he quotes from Isaiah 59, 20. In 21 as well as Isaiah 27.9. Where he says that the deliverer will come out of, of Zion. Which clearly I think we would all see as being a reference to Christ. And he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So what is, what is this salvation that, that Israel will experience? It's the same salvation that you and I have experienced. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, who is our deliverer, who comes out of Zion, and who delivers people from ungodliness and takes away their sin. So with this in mind, Paul summarizes in verse 28 and 29 what God has done in his dealings with both Jew and Gentile. He says in verse 28, Concerning the gospel, they, referring to ethnic Israel, are enemies for your sake, meaning that in order for God to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, God looked upon Israel corporately as enemies. But concerning the election They are beloved for the sake of the fathers. That is, in relation to God's election of Abraham and the covenant God made with Abraham and the other patriarchs, Israel is beloved. That's Paul's way of saying that that God has not forgotten that Israel is his people. And this is underscored in verse 29. He says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You know what that means for us? This morning it means that that God's gifts and God's calling upon your life and upon my life cannot be retracted or reversed. It is literally impossible for any of us to lose our salvation. Impossible. God does not change his mind. What he has done is done. What he has said, it stands. So Paul reminds his Gentile brothers once again in verse 30 and 31. For as you were disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these also have now been disobedient. That through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. Paul says, although at one time... Gentiles were disobedient to God just like the Jews. They, meaning the Gentiles, have now received mercy through corporate Israel's disobedience. And if this is the case, God is able to show the same mercy shown to Gentiles to Israel that they too may obtain mercy. For as Paul reveals in verse 32, God has committed them all to disobedience. That he might have mercy on all. Here's another one of those examples where Paul uses the word all, and it doesn't necessarily mean all in meaning every single person. In other words, I think it means a reference, it's actually a reference to all Jews and Gentiles alike. Read the all referring to those two groups or races of people. So how does Paul close out this chapter? Well, he closes it out by worshiping the Lord. I mean, he actually breaks out in doxology in an expression of praise to God. And rightfully so. I mean, how else could we close this chapter than by just falling on our knees and worshiping the Lord? As we are absolutely blown away and astounded by what God not only has done in us, but what God is going to do in the future. Listen, the the promises that God made to Israel ought to matter to us. Because once again, it's a reminder to us of God's faithfulness. And that when God speaks, that He speaks truth. He He doesn't give us promises and then take them away. No, He fulfills them. So Paul says in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments. And his ways past finding out. I think that every single one of us this morning would say that we understand that, don't we? I mean, we understand that God's ways are not our ways. We don't, we don't work the way that God works. He works differently from us. And then in verse 34 and 35, he he asks three questions. And here's what I want us to do this morning. I can't think of a better way for us to end this portion of scripture by us saying this together at the end of each question i'm going to read it and i want us to say no one because that's really the response so you ready let's try it see how it works out verse 34 for who has known the mind of the lord no one or who has become his counselor no one or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him no one let's read verse 36 together For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together.